Will you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Tonight, for our New Testament reading, we're going to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is different from what I listed in the bulletin, but I changed my mind. 2 Corinthians 4. Yes, 2 Corinthians 4. And then we'll turn to our sermon text in Psalm 57. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, now we're going to read your word, and we're keenly aware of our weaknesses, our weaknesses as Christians, our weaknesses as Bible readers, our weaknesses, uh, my weakness as a preacher, um, Lord, our, our weakness together as a congregation. We can only do this with your help, uh, anything really worth doing tonight. And so we ask that your Holy Spirit would be powerfully at work, um, so that this would not just be an outward form of reading sounds out loud and just sitting and listening, but, Lord, a true means of grace according to your promise and through the power of your Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Corinthians chapter 4. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants. For Jesus' sake, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are are eternal. Amen. 
Let's turn now to Psalm 57. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a miktam of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way, but they themselves into it, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart is steadfast, O God, my heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens, your faithfulness to the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Amen. You may be seated. Well, everybody knows the tired old illustration about the glass of water and is it half full or half empty? There are a lot of funny answers, of course. Um, a chemist would say, well, the bottom half is full of water, but the top half is full of air. Um, in other words, the engineer would say, well, that glass is twice as big as it really needs to be. Um, but, of course, the classic options are, are you an optimist or are you a pessimist? Um, the optimist is the one who says, oh, it's half full, and the pessimist is the one who says, oh, it's half empty already. And, um, of course... Uh, the typical way people try to kind of split the horns of this dilemma is to say, well, I'm not an optimist or a pessimist. I'm a realist. So everybody likes to fancy themselves. I'm just a realist, which is another way of saying, well, I'm just right. <laughs> right? My way of, view, of viewing the world is the correct way. It's the real way. Um, but it still leaves open the question, is your view of reality more positive or more negative? There's still going to be differences. Is it more, more hopeful or is it more discouraging? So a question I have for you tonight is, is this. Is Christianity optimistic or pessimistic? Is Christ, should Christians be optimists or pessimists? And I hope you can tell that this is a trick question, because it is. Uh, and as you might expect, I too am going to try to split the horns of that dilemma tonight. I'm going to say that Christians ought to be realists. But I want to go a step further than that, because what passes for realism for many people is not really realistic. 
because it is earthbound. Earthbound. It only takes into account what they can see and experience and infer maybe about the world. So what I want us to see in this psalm is a different kind of realism. It is realism, but it is a different kind of realism, which I'm going to call an exuberant realism. A realism that reevaluates all of life, the good and the bad that we encounter in this world, in the perspective of what we might call the deep reality of things, the reality of who God is on his heavenly throne what his character is really like, what promises he has made. That's the kind of reality that we want to consider and meditate on. This is about learning to see with the eyes of faith. Eyes that look with with truly ruthless and brutal honesty at the facts of life. Okay, So that's part of it. A faith that cries out to God about those things. Telling it like it is, right? As we see it, there are also eyes, these eyes of faith, that look beyond what we can see. They look beyond what we can see to the unseen realities of the power and the presence and the promises of God. Again, though, telling it like it is. This is not an escape from reality. It is an insight into the deep reality of things beyond what we can see. So our three points tonight are going to be, first, the cry of faith, verses 1 through 3. Second will be worship under pressure, verses 4 to 6. And then third will be that exuberant realism, verses 7 through 11. Cry of faith, worship under pressure, and exuberant realism. All right, so first there's this cry of faith. Um, the psalm begins in the same way that Psalm 56 began last week, which was, you may remember, the same as Psalm 51. Translated differently, um, but the same Hebrew word, be merciful or be gracious. It's the same thing. Show your favor to me, O God. It's basically what it means. For in you, my soul takes refuge. And this imagery of refuge runs all through the psalms. We've talked about it many times. It's this picture of going somewhere safe. Going somewhere safe, a a shelter, a place where you're going to be protected, where you're going to be secure, where you're going to be untouchable. That's what David is looking for. I don't know where you were when the um, severe thunderstorm came through on Friday. Um, I was at my office at the time, and it was pretty awesome to behold, um, even from inside, looking through my window. Uh, The rest of my family that day was at Sayers Lake up at Bald Eagle. And um, I enjoyed hearing at dinner that night how they had all just gotten back in the car from the beach um, when all of a sudden the sky just opened up and the wind started blowing. And I can tell you, they were, they were very glad to be back in the van and not out there in the sand exposed on the beach. And that, of course, is just a little taste. That's just a pale reflection, almost, of, of the kind of thing that David is talking about here In the shadow of your wings, I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I think you could say that David is being very realistic here. 
He's not saying, oh, well, because this is a psalm, because I'm supposed to be worshiping and praying here, I can't really bring up the storms of destruction because that's so negative. We don't talk about those kinds of things in church. No, David is, when David was hiding in the wilderness caves, he was trying to stay away from Saul so that Saul wouldn't kill him. He did not have the luxury of denying or brushing over how dangerous and scary and terrible life was for him. He had to be, and he was, and he is in the Psalms, very realistic about the fear and tragedy and peril of life. Remember last time what he told Jonathan, there is but a step between me and death. David was also very realistic about something else. About the refuge that he could find for his soul in God. The shadow of your wings. We've seen this before. It's that tender, intimate image of a mother bird right, shielding her young from the wind and the rain with her own body. So the rain and the wind fall on her instead of on them. Beautiful picture of what it's like to be under the wings of Christ, shielding us from the judgment that we deserve. David's crying out here, verse 2. This raw cry from within his soul. He's not being a stoic about this. He's not just saying, oh, well, you know, it is what it is. Que You know, whatever will be, will be kind of thing. Nothing I can do about it. He's not, he's not trying to kind of diminish or deny this pain, danger, and suffering. He is crying out about it. But as we talked about last time, he is not crying out into the void. And that's what makes all the difference here between this cry of faith and a cry of despair. They are two very different things. He is crying out to God Most High. That's important the way he puts it there the way he names the Lord, God Most High, the God who is above, who transcends all of these things, God who not only has this position of sovereignty as the highest authority and power out there, um, but God who also, God Most High, who has a special and personal purpose for David, a purpose that is surely going to be fulfilled. He, uh, I cry out to God Most High, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. It's that bigness of God, that transcendence of God, but also the nearness of God, the particular concern of God for this man. He dwells in a high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite spirit. Right? He says that this almighty God most high is going to send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Okay, so there's three things that God is going to do. See, this is, this is a part of this believing realism, this realism of faith. It's seeing not only the reality of, of the bad and hard things of life, it is seeing, it is crying those realities out to God and crying with confidence that God is going to do something about it. So I, I love this imagery of God sending out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Those attributes of God, steadfast love and faithfulness, um, those are not kind of static things, kind of frozen in place. God is not frozen in place 
this kind of distant ideal for us to kind of look at and admire and maybe aspire to, but it's just out there frozen. Um, that's not what God is like. This psalm pictures God sending forth those attributes from heaven. As we've talked about a couple of times recently, God not just being who he is, but being who he is for me right now. Um, and this has always been true, of course, this activity of God sending out his attributes for the help of his people. Um, and it was true in David's time, sending out your steadfast love and faithfulness. But I think we could say it's true in a, a special and heightened way now for the church um, since the coming of Christ. Because you think about the history of our salvation and what Jesus did for us. He not only ascended into heaven, right? Jesus taking his place as God Most High at the right hand of the Father. Um, he not only sat down there at the right hand of God, the name above every name. He didn't just go to reign there at this vast distance removed from us, because what did he do next, right? He sent forth the Holy Spirit. He sent forth his steadfast love and his faithfulness. He poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church at Pentecost. Holy Spirit who brings Christ's own presence and power to bear on our lives in the here and now, and our experience both as individuals and together as a church. So you see this, this believing realism, this realism of faith, refuses to deny or to downplay Either on, on the one hand, how deeply bad things really are. Or on the other hand, how deeply good is the reign of Christ on his heavenly throne and his Holy Spirit that he has sent forth to indwell us and to come to our aid. That is good news for the people of God, that Christ is reigning and that he has sent forth his spirit. And so what you get here is David's cry, very raw, very real, but it is the cry of faith. And part of that reality is the goodness and the greatness and the grace of the Lord. And it is that reality, in fact, which really is most fundamental for David. And, and it shapes and it transforms David's outlook on the very real pain and danger and difficulty that he's living through. They go together, but that deep reality of who God is and who he is towards David. That's what underlies everything. That's what's most fundamental. All right, now the second part here I've called worship under pressure. We're on verses 4 to 6. And what I want to call to your attention in verses 4 to 6 here is this kind of sandwich <laughs> um, in the text. In, uh, in verses 4 to 6, for in verse 4 and verse 6, skipping over verse 5, David is describing in both those verses how he feels surrounded and trapped by his enemies. Surrounded and trapped. You remember last time um, how you had Saul on one side and then he flees to the Philistines, but then they want to take him captive on the other side. And so there's like these pincers uh, from both sides. David is um, trapped. And how is he going to escape? How is he going to survive? My soul is in the midst of lions, he says. I lie down among fiery beasts, the children of man, whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. And you can see there's application here not only to physical dangers, where, where your life is actually in danger, um, but also to other kinds of danger, danger to your reputation, 
the, the wounding of words, things that people may say to you or say about you. Yeah, one of the you know, sticks and stones may break my bones saying, it's not true, of course, about how names can never hurt. That's, that's not the experience of many people, right? Because words are actually some of our most powerful weapons and have the potential to do tremendous harm to others. It's a major theme in the book of James. You know this. And so here David is on the receiving end, not just of Saul's military campaign to try to take his life, but also, you remember, of Saul's slander. Saul's slander. His, his total misconstruing of David's character and David's intentions, how Saul's been painting him as a traitor and a rebel, when in fact David is Saul's most loyal servant. In spite of everything that Saul has done to him. And then in verse 6, there's this picture of a net. Um, now, in this case, the tables kind of get turned here. Because of what God is doing, his enemies' plans are going to backfire. They're going to become the victims of their own treachery. They're going to fall into their own trap, kind of like Haman when he gets hanged on the very gallows that he built for Mordecai. Um, but, of course, there was a period of time, beginning of verse 6, where that outcome was not the obvious one. That's not how it looked like things were going to turn out. That, that was the Lord's plot twist, right? That he had reserved for the end of the story. But in the meantime, David says, they set a net for my steps and my soul was bowed down. Okay, now I said this was a, a sandwich, right? So what's the meat? What's the, or the cream in the middle, if you want to think of it as an Oreo, right? So in the center of these outer pieces, four and six, about danger, is verse five. And verse 5 doesn't really seem to match what's on either side of it, right? It seems to kind of interrupt the whole flow of thought. But you see, I think that's exactly the point. It's exactly the point. I'm calling this worship under pressure. This worship comes in the midst of David's description of the power and deviousness of his enemies. It splits that danger right in two down the middle. And so even as David is surrounded by his enemies, this salvo of worship is surrounded on either side by those same enemies, and yet it goes on. And yet it goes on. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. I love it when the evening text kind of matches the morning text. Remember those two kind of key verses, very memorable ones from our text this morning. One being let, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And then the other one, but the Lord is in his holy temple, let all the earth keep silence before him. You see how those same themes are in David's worship here. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. It's amazing. And in both cases, that glory of God that heavenly reign of God is in contrast with what? It's in contrast with the apparently overwhelming power of the enemies of God's people, whether it's Babylon and Habakkuk or Saul and the Philistines here in this psalm. They seem so strong. Their victory seems so inevitable. It seems like they're going to get away with it, to get away with everything. That's the way things seem, you see. And somebody might say, well, that's just being realistic. That's just the way things are. That's the realism that's actually cynicism. Right? That's not realism at all. It's the way things seem, but it's not the way things really are. That is not reality. Reality is what David is perceiving here with the eyes of faith. The deep reality. 
that God is in fact exalted far above those enemies, even above the heavens themselves. And I love that God is being exalted above even the heavens. It's not that God is in the heavens, he's above even the heavens. And if God's glory is over all the earth, then that means that the, the, the threat and the, the kind of bravado of his enemies is going to start to look much smaller, kind of puny in comparison, isn't it? What once seemed so ultimate, so inexorable, it's not. David can see that by faith because there is something far overshadowing and outshining, that kind of dwarfing these enemies' conspiracy by comparison. Now, see, this is what so much of what worship is, is about. It's about coming here out of the chaos of life. Everything's swirling around us. Life is very hard, very painful. The enemy is very powerful. We, we come here, we're confused, we're discouraged. The future doesn't seem very bright in all kinds of ways. We come here and we are confronted with the deep reality of the majesty of God. And we're reminded that God is in his holy temple to be silent before him. We're reminded that the Lamb is on the throne. And see, that doesn't mean that everything else that we came with is not real or that it all disappears, or that we're being told, oh, it's not that bad after all. It's not that at all. Rather, it's that all of those other things are put into perspective. They're put into perspective. See, the Christian life is all about worship under pressure. It's about feeling that pressure of life, and then out of that pressure, and in the midst of that pressure, crying out to God, not just for our own deliverance, but for his glory. See the difference there? See, David isn't only saying here, God help me, God rescue me, God deliver me. He does say that. It's not that that's wrong to say. But it's that he has another desire that's even more fundamental and ultimately more important than that, which is, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is why the Lord's Prayer, before Jesus teaches us to pray anything about ourselves, what's the first thing we're to pray? Hallowed be thy name. It's the first petition because it's the most important one. Be praying for the glory of God and to find our greatest happiness, as it's been said, in God's greatest glory. You know that quote. And it's also important that David places this prayer of praise not at the end, not after the deliverance comes, right? We're, we're used to, well, the deliverance happens and then I praise God for it because I'm thankful that it's already happened. But no, not in this case. Here David places it right in the middle while he's still surrounded, while the net is still spread. Then it is that David worships God. Be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. See, so many times we can be tempted to think, you know, I don't really feel very worshipful today. I don't feel that, that joy. I don't feel that excitement that I, I, I kind of think that I ought to feel if I'm really going to worship God. And that's partly due, I think, to some of the, the kind of trends in 
worship in certain parts of the church where, where it's sometimes kind of assumed or, or we act, or people act as though worship is supposed to be all positive and all smiley and happy to the point that if that's not my mood at the moment, if that's, not, if that's just not what my life is like right now, then how can I participate in that kind of worship? You see, the Psalms show us something different. The Psalms show us like what it is like to worship under pressure. To worship when we don't feel, quote-unquote, worshipful. When life is really hard. And it is precisely at that moment. Not when it's over. Not to wait until it's over. Not to wait until I get into a more worshipful or cheerful frame of mind. God doesn't expect me to be cheerful when I come to worship Him. It is precisely in this moment of danger that God is calling David to worship Him. It is precisely... In those moments of danger and confusion and pain and discouragement in our own lives that God is calling us to worship him together. To set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is seated at God's right hand. And to look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Because as we read earlier, the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He's calling us to behold and to proclaim the glory of God. And to say, Father, hallowed be your name. Okay. Well, there's something else that's great about the Psalms. You might think, based on what I've just said, that there's no real encouragement here. That we're just supposed to worship God, but we're still going to just be kind of stuck in the hardness of life. And that there's not really a way out, at least until we escape this world and go to heaven. Well, that's not true either. Because the other great thing about the Psalms is the way they show us the way out. The way they take us on an emotional journey out of the depths by God's grace. They don't assume that we're going to start out all happy and joyful. But they do show us a pathway to joy that runs through worship. And this is not some promise that if, you, if you're just worshiping right, then you'll feel happy at the end of it. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that you can trace in David's experience here a movement from sorrow to joy, a movement that happens through coming face to face with the deep reality we've been talking about. And this is what we're describing in verses 7 through 11 as an exuberant realism. Okay, so let's see what, how David winds up here. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awake the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens and your faithfulness to the clouds. See, David teaches us how to lament. But boy, does he teach us to do the opposite as well. To rejoice exuberantly and extravagantly, triumphantly and unabashedly in steadfast love and the faithfulness of God. Those same two attributes, by the way, that he mentioned back in verse 3, right? Steadfast love and faithfulness. Those things that God was going to send out from heaven to help him. And now he is saying that those same two things, that steadfast love and faithfulness, great to the heavens, great to the clouds. But 
you got to understand, this is not this kind of naivety, this kind of bubbly cheerfulness of kind of this wishful thinking optimist that's out of touch with reality. This is not David burying his head in the sand and saying, I'm just not going to think about the hard things. I'm going to pretend like everything is unicorns and rainbows. That's not what David's doing. This is David beholding, David coming to terms with the deep reality that underlies and encircles and gives meaning to those very hard things of life that are so very real to him at this time. See, to miss or to ignore the glory and majesty of God on his heavenly throne, that is not to be a realist at all. When we miss those things, we're only seeing a sliver of reality, and we're seeing it all out of proportion and all out of focus. It gets things all distorted. Like a picture of somebody's face where the, the you know one eye is this big and the rest of the face is all shrunk down because of some trick of the lens. This is what happens when all we can see is the reality of the hardness and we miss the reality of God's majesty and grace. See, it's when we come face to face with the glory and majesty of God, like in the psalm, when we become God-centered in our thinking and in our outlook, that's when we see things the way they really are. And that's when we start to learn, then, gradually, perhaps, falteringly, perhaps, not all the same all the time, but we do learn how David could have such joy, such confidence, such exuberance, even, in the middle of some of the very hardest seasons of his life. It's the, I'd argue it's that same exuberant realism. You can see... In the prayer of Jesus, the night before he goes to the cross, in John 17, when he says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the cross. The cross where he is going to be lifted up so that he might draw all people to himself. Lifted up was he to die. It is finished was his cry. Now in heaven exalted high. Hallelujah. What a savior. Right? It was for the joy that was set before him, Hebrews says, that he endured the cross. Despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, Jesus was the ultimate realist. He was a realist when he said, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Jesus was not naive about the cross. He was under no illusions about the agony of crucifixion for his body or of bearing the wrath of God against our sin. But he knew at the same time that further reality, that beyond the cross lay the resurrection the ascension, that in the midst of death, through his death, he was winning for himself and for all of his people a life without comparison that's never going to end. Okay, so as a Christian, are you to be an optimist or are you to be a pessimist? And, of course... Everybody rather describe themselves as a realist. And that's okay. That's okay 
as long as you've got yourself a full picture of reality. The way things really are. And that's why you and I have got to learn to set our minds on things that are above where Christ is. Because our life is hidden with Christ and God. And when Christ, who is our life, appears, we're also going to appear with him in glory. And that doesn't mean that life does not hurt right now. But it does mean that that hurt is not all there is. Not even close. So let's pray. Our Father in heaven, our eyes are so dim, so tunnel visioned. Our perspective is so limited. Open our eyes, we pray. So we can see things the way they really are as you see them and as you've shown them to us in your word. Teach us to see with the eyes of faith, beyond what is seen to what is unseen and eternal. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.